you know, I don't say, I think practically speaking, sometimes in evangelical churches, pastors have the, have the idea or the instinct that the health of this church depends on me and what I give them. And this church's theology is really my theology writ large. But that can be a dangerous thing for a pastor as well. It can mess with your ego. And if you're not really careful and really smart, you can mess people up with that. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today we are continuing our conversation with CPT theological mentor Doug Sweeney, who also serves as the dean of Beeson Divinity School. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first half of the conversation, I encourage you to check that out. It's the episode immediately previous to this one, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Doug, to pivot a little bit back to to kind of into your story, uh, tell us about your experience at Vanderbilt. Here you are, an evangelical, just you know, fresh out of Wheaton College and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You landed Vanderbilt, which is not a bastion of evangelical commitments and theology. How did that go? Was that was that challenging? I'm sure it was intellectually incredibly stimulating and invigorating. But how did a What did you study? How the experience go? And then B how did your faith develop while you were there and with, with that environment, in that environment? Yeah, my PhD was in religion. And in my day at Vanderbilt, there were nine tracks in the religion department, PhD program at Vanderbilt. And everybody's, everybody was supposed to major in one of them and minor in one or two of them. So my major area was the history of Christian thought. And my minor areas were church history, which was uh-huh. studied a little bit more socioculturally, institutionally, and theology. Uh, and Vanderbilt was wonderful for me. Um, uh-huh. Now, if, if you're not the kind of person who enjoys mixing it up with people who are different from you and learning <laughs> from right. people whose theology you're not interested in affirming, you'd right. have a very difficult time at a school like Vanderbilt. But I, I like learning from people who are different from me. Indeed. Uh, and my teachers at Vanderbilt, they knew a lot about the traditions of Christian thought. And uh, I just soaked it up from them. Um, you know, there were points of tension. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was at Vanderbilt, a couple of my friends who were more theologically orthodox than their teachers were, but were in the theology track, not the history track, got shown the back door, um, you know, at comprehensive exam time. There were things like that that happened. I was in the evangelical student group at Vanderbilt, and we were the only student group that got no official recognition from the school and funding, you know. Wow. So there were experiences like that. But generally speaking, I had teachers who knew parts of the Christian tradition that weren't emphasized as much at Wheaton College and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So I relished the opportunity of learning those things uh, from people who knew them well. And I had a lot of teachers who were just really great people and Mm. took me under their wings and helped me. And yeah, so. That's marvelous. That's marvelous. And what was your dissertation research and thesis on, Doug? I was thinking because Mark Knoll was a big Jonathan Edwards fan. Yeah. And of course, evangelicals have always 
until recently. Edwards isn't as cool anymore as he used to be, yeah. but back yeah. when I was young, he was a cool thing to study. And I had a prof at Vanderbilt uh, who was a big Edwards guy, huh. but he told me, Doug, I think you could write a dissertation that gets published, but I'm not sure if you write on Edwards, it'll be as easy to get published with a good publisher because everybody talks about Edwards and I don't want your project to get lost in the crowd. Oh, interesting. So he encouraged me to do something else that maybe was connected tangentially to Edwards, but was on a different topic. And so I wrote my dissertation on the founding theologian at Yale Divinity School in the 1820s, a man named Nathaniel William Taylor. Yes. And he thought of himself as an Edwardsian in the 19th yes. century, but he very controversially repackaged Edwardsian theology for his day and wound up dividing the congregational churches in New England and the Presbyterian wow. churches of the North as a result. And I, he's a fascinating guy. So I focused on him and how it was that someone like him could claim to be a faithful repackager of his Edwardsian mm. theological legacy in the 19th century. Marvelous. And because so you, I'm not, I'm, by then I was doctrinally speaking more of a Lutheran than anything else, it was a little bit easier for a guy like me to do that because I, I didn't feel like I was supposed to be taking sides all the time. He, he's right. being faithful or unfaithful with his patrimony. I was just more interested as a historian of theology how that worked for him. Yes, yeah, for sure. And and so this sets you on the trajectory of early American church history, and you that has been really your focus. Uh, you've done a lot of work on Edwards, of course, but but you've you've moved in lots of other places and spaces beyond that. Talk about the development of your scholarship. You spent some time at Yale, of course, and and sunk real deep into Edwardsian thinking and, and manuscripts, et cetera, et cetera. But, but talk about um, uh, how, how your, your academic and scholarly life developed. Yeah, I'm not sure people who are in their 20s today can appreciate what I'm about to say, but mm. I'm only 56 years old. Um, I went to grad school in the late 80s and early 90s. But still, even that recently – my education was very Western. Almost uh, everything we studied in the history of Christianity, even in humanities classes, um, in theology, was Western. Mm. And so uh, that was okay for me because I'm Western and I was trying to figure out where my heritage comes from and all that kind of thing. But this is a good way to answer the question you posed yes. to me because I started out working on early modern Western Protestant theological <laughs> history, because that's that's how, what God used to help me so much, and I just got way into it and uh, wrote about it, researched it, and I still to this day do some of that, um, and I'm happy to to continue doing it. I mean, it's, I don't I don't want to be silly. I mean, I live in the West. I train pastors to to work in the West. It's a pretty good right. set of things to talk <clears throat> about and write about, but especially after I moved from Yale to Trinity, I got challenged in two ways by the, some of the older people on the faculty at Trinity, mm. including mm. my dean, who at the time um, uh, I'm remembering here uh, was a man named T. Tienu, who oh. grew up in what used to be called Upper Volta. Today we call it Burkina Faso. 
and is very much interested in the globalization of evangelical theology and wow. helping people who grew up like me understand that God has been at work in the world in much bigger, broader ways than we grew up recognizing. Wow, yes. Amazing. And then the other thing, my so so the, about to say two two things. My older teachers, my older colleagues, uh, encouraged me to do when I started out as a young prophet. Ted's one thing that you know I come from Yale and Vanderbilt, and I was sort of a technical history of theology guy. Mm-hmm. They said, "All right, Doug, you're in a seminary now. You're here to serve the church." You're, you should be more. You should be as interested, or more interested, in serving the Lord's people in congregations, as you are in, in scoring points academically. So, how about wow. for every book and article you write that's sort of technical, historical, you write another book or article that's for a broader range of Christians wow. and is aimed more at church people. That was set up as a sort of proper challenge goal to you, Doug. The, it, and it was it was the bit it was that explicit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it wasn't a rule. You know, sure, they, sure. they weren't saying you won't do well here unless you. It right. was nothing, nothing like that. But that that was the encouragement. Wow. And then the other thing was, um, who suggested, you know, how about you help us out, help the next generation of evangelicals coming up to see that the church is much bigger than than Western Christianity, and try to expand wow. our horizons in that way as well. Wow. So those would be the two two developments, and so. Um, I became very active, particularly by my 40s, late 30s and 40s, uh, hosting conferences through a center I led at Trinity that were international in orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, the big project I've been working on in recent years is a two-volume global history of Christian doctrine. So I'm doing more of those things, and I've, I've done for 20 years now a lot more things that aren't just technical and aimed at academics, but are... Right using church history and theology to help edify and bless larger groups of Christians. What are the things in that, that second category that you're most, um, uh, how do I want to put it, most proud of maybe would be the way to put it, most proud of you feel like are, are really capture your heart and, and, and feel like are really serving churches and pastors well, Doug? Well, probably the, the thing that really serves best Mm-hmm. Is not not the books and articles by themselves, right? But it's ministry in churches that's based mm. on, or uses, or is connected to the books and articles that you wrote for large yeah. groups of people. So the books that I've done um, that have been used the most in broader ecclesial contexts would be books like um, a book I wrote on the American evangelical story mm-hmm. almost twenty years ago now. Um, a book I did a little bit over a decade ago called Jonathan Edwards and the Ministry of the Word. Yeah. Some things that I've done for uh, Christian magazines. Mm-hmm. But then when you combine that with teaching, and you know, Todd, you've pastored churches like this. There are some churches, particularly, they're a little bit bigger usually, and they're in urban, suburban contexts with a lot of educated people in them. Yeah. A lot of these churches have adult ed settings, where they think it's kind of cool if every once in a while you bring somebody in from one of the colleges or the seminaries, so long as they're able to articulate what it is they do in a way that's really good for everybody who would attend the class. I think that can really help people. And as um, 
as a seminary leader uh, in recent years, I've played a role in just encouraging uh, more and more scholars who teach at Christian colleges and seminaries to be actually practically useful mm. in churches with their gifts, uh, yeah. with what they're good at, uh, with yeah. teaching ministries. N- not all of them would be good at preaching sermons. Some of them are, but almost all of them could develop skills that really help God's people generally uh, based on the expertise, the academic expertise that these folks have. Yeah, that's marvelous. And how how was it stepping into an environment? I'm going back to the, the challenge that you received to, hey, Doug, you are now on the front lines of training pastors that are going to be churchmen and women and serving God's people week in and week out. How was that in sort of developing as not just a scholar or even a teacher, but as a equipper trainer of pastors? Because those aren't the same, right? <laughs> there's a lot of overlap potentially, but there's some unique things with, with you know, being a, an effective teacher of pastors, given the demands and challenges and reality of pastoral ministry. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I I think those are the kinds of things, if your heart's in it and you work hard at it, uh, you can learn over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a small percentage of academics who just, for whatever reason, can't communicate clearly enough to be Mm. super helpful in a church context. But I think others who work on it, and I think teaching, even teaching at a Christian college or seminary can help you with this a lot. I mean, if you're... If you're teaching either in a college, 18 or 19-year-old kids who need you to be clear, they don't need you to dumb things down, right. but they need you to explain clearly what it is you're talking about, what it is you're thinking about, and what it has to do with their lives. Not just your, your buddies who specialize in the same little set of things in the, in the academy, but what it has to do with their lives. Uh, and then in a seminary context, when you have pastors in the making who know they're supposed to learn about church history, but need you to explain to them why any of this matters for Mm -hmm. pastoral ministry and what difference it should make and the way they practice as pastors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you care about those people and you care about the teaching ministry you're involved in, I think over time, you just develop better and better skills at communicating in those sorts of ways. And what what do you say to them when they ask you, Dr. Sweeney, why are we learning church history? I just want to be a preacher and a pastor. You know, let me go take some New Testament courses or maybe some theology, certainly some homiletics and pastoral counseling or leadership. What's with this church history stuff? What do you say? How do you commend church history as a discipline for the equipping and training of pastors? Well, it depends who I'm talking to. But if Uh I'm talking to the sorts of evangelicals we've been talking about in this interview, uh, I say, well, you're not really going to come to um, a good, reliable understanding of why it is that people in your church context have interpreted scripture and worshipped and mm. done discipleship and outreach in the way they've done it if you don't understand church history. You're not going to know what orthodoxy is yeah. unless you understand church history. Uh, you're not going to be um, interpreting and preaching the Bible with a a deep, rich set of tools that other kinds of pastors have at their disposal, if you ignore church history. Um, You know, there's a lot of reasons, but I think those those (laughs) three are are pretty important, I think, to most (laughs) evangelical pastors. And um, 
you know, I don't say, I think practically speaking, sometimes in evangelical churches, pastors have the, have the idea or the instinct that the health of this church depends on me and what I give them. And this church's theology is really my theology writ large. But that can be a dangerous thing for a pastor as well. It can mess with your ego. And if you're not really careful and really smart, you can mess people up with that. And Doug, so I, that's a heavy burden, man. That is a heavy burden yeah. to bear, right? Yeah, but w- but we don't have to bear it. You know, thanks right. be to God. <laughs> yes, there are other yes. Christians in the world who have interpreted the Bible before. A lot of them have done it pretty well. And a lot of them would like to do it together with you even now. And uh, people, people like that are people who appreciate the resources of the Christian tradition and want to want to teach people the Christian faith and its implications for their daily lives in a way that's not just here's here's what I as an individual came up with you for came up for you this week came up with you sorry came up for you uh, this week uh, from my own study of the Bible yeah no for sure um, and Doug you were you were at Trinity for I want to say 20 years? Is that, was it 20 years? Yeah, 22. 22 years, yeah. And and you have been at, at Beeson. And I, I, I want to say, like, you've been there for a year, but you've actually, this is your third year. You're into your third year, maybe your fourth year now. Yeah, this is my third year. We third came year, here yeah. in the spring of 2019. Right, right. So, um, and you obviously had administrative experience and, and things you were doing running the center at the Henry Center at um, Trinity and other stuff. But stepping in to be the dean of a divinity school is a different role. How have you found that? And, and what are you really loving about that, that opportunity and role now? And, and talk to us a little about Beeson, which is, um, I've got, I've, I've been down there a number of times and privileged to serve on the advisory board is a fabulous, lovely place. Uh, so no doubt it's a privilege just to be there and, and be serving as a dean. But how have you found the, the it sounds auspicious, doesn't it? Like you're the dean of a divinity school, <laughs> right? That's a big deal. Talk to us about, you know, what that's, what that's been like. It's been wonderful. Now, mo- most of my deanship uh, has been, uh, COVID time. So yeah. that's not been wonderful. Right. Uh, but being the Dean of Beeson is a wonderful, is a wonderful job. Uh, Beeson is a young seminary, relatively small, still mm-hmm. founded in 1988 uh, as an interdenominational Protestant divinity school uh, on the campus of Samford University. Uh, we've got about 140 students, uh, mostly Master of Divinity students, mostly getting ready to be pastors. Uh, we've got a wonderful faculty, about 20 full-time faculty, uh, mature, godly people. Most of the faculty are my age or older, mm. uh, so most of them are, are older and more mature than I am. Uh, so, frankly, it's not that hard being their dean. They're pretty good at yeah. what they do already. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and lovely to, people. There's so many lovely people, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. And I get to help them. I get to pastor them and minister to them and uh, support them, resource them. Uh, yeah, so I enjoy it quite a bit. And the thing that I I like best about being the dean of Beeson Divinity School is that we are just unapologetically committed to a life together, life on life, a communal, in-person, yeah. residential model uh, for mm-hmm. training the next generation of pastors. We think there are some things you can do pretty well online, 
like this conversation we're having right now. Yeah. But we think that generally speaking, pastors are better trained personally, interpersonally, in community. Pastoral ministry is a personal, interpersonal kind of ministry. Mm. And um, so we're generally opposed to a lot of online education. And we invest a great lot of energy in combining first-rate academics with a strong, godly, uh, worshipful community of mm. faculty, staff, and students who live life together and pray together and study together and worship together and have fun together and make lifelong friendships that then will sustain and support them in their pastoral ministries, even after graduation. So this is a, it's a wonderful place yeah. to be a dean for those reasons. You get to see that theological education done right and support it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Doug, from your, I would imagine, not that you weren't thinking along these lines uh, when you were at Trinity, but perhaps maybe even more so now that you are the dean at Beeson. um, How do you feel, what are your thoughts on the state of evangelical Christianity right now? I mean, obviously 2020 was a fairly tumultuous year for the country and frankly, for evangelicalism, as you look out upon the, you know, the, on the landscape of evangelical Christianity, are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? Are you discouraged? Are you concerned? A little mix of all of that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, I think evangelicalism at its best uh, is still as helpful a movement of Christians as you'll find anywhere in the world. Mm. But evangelicalism at its worst is obviously a pretty nasty, harmful thing. Mm. So um, anymore, when we have conversations with people who aren't just historians about evangelicalism, I think it's really important just to sort out who are we talking about here? Yes. <laughs> what do you yes. mean by that word? Do you mean the kind of people who storm the Capitol? Or do you mean the kinds of people who are engaged in wonderful uh, renewal movements in churches all over the globe today and are a lot more prevalent outside the Western world than they are in the United States? And then even within the United States, I mean, there's lots of people who still use the word evangelical who do wonderful uh, ministry, mature, Mm -hmm. godly people, wonderful theologians, preachers and teachers, disciples, disciple makers. Um, But then... You know, you read the paper or you watch CNN and you you come to think, well, maybe most of the people who use the word evangelical now just sort of use it as a, I I was saying in a church the other day, it seems to me that these days, far too many people on the far right and the far left have, it's, it's almost like they've substituted being on the far right or the far left in the culture wars of the United States uh, for their traditional Christianity. That has become religion for them. That's become a substitute for what most of us would recognize as authentic Christianity. Yes. And there's a lot of evangelicals who are involved, implicated in that, that development. And that is an unfortunate thing. You know, I oppose that even as I thank God for the way in which he continues to use lots of other people who call themselves mm-hmm. evangelicals to, to bless people all around the world. 
Yeah, no, beautiful, beautiful. We've been thinking a lot at the CPT, Doug, um, about 2020 and what it has revealed about the evangelical movement um, and what it means for the CPT going forward. And one of the things we've underscored is, um, we're, you know, uh, is we're still very committed to our mission of helping pastors be theologically driven and theologically minded in their approach to ministry. But two other sort of parts of that DNA strand, one is relational, not just theological, but relational, uh, to work against, push back on the individualism or even hyper-individualism that seems to mark much of of evangelical Christianity and, and practice. But then the third piece of the DNA strand is interdenominational. And how uh, uh, invaluable it is to be regularly connecting with in in a meaningful substantive way with other Christ- Christians from other denominations, theological traditions. That has a it, it. It seems to me, in my experience, and and looking at the CPT and the fellows and pastors involved, a marvelous formative influence that is good for them in their ministry and leadership, but then it seems to me for the movement of evangelicalism to have that kind of interdenominational interaction. Would you res- you resonate with that, Doug? I do. I've spent um, the last 35 years teaching in intentionally interdenominational theological schools, and I find mm. it uh, very enriching. Mm-hmm. I find it good for people's spiritual and pastoral formation, Yes. I find it good for our education. I mean, even from a strictly pedagogical right. point of view, I think it's better to learn what Anglicans think and practice from Anglicans than just sort of get inoculated against what they think or practice from people in my own denomination. Uh, and just for, again, ecclesiological reasons, the, the, the body of Christ is not made up just of Lutherans mm. or just of Baptists or just of non-denominational people. Uh, it's a good idea to get used to living life together, uh, engaging in discipleship together, worshiping together with the sorts of people we're going to be with forever in the New Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, so I love interdenominational settings. Marvelous, marvelous. That's a that's a Doug. That's a perfect note to end on, pointing us to living uh, with with brothers and sisters in the New Jerusalem. Um, thank you again for uh, the friendship and partnership. Uh, with the CPT over the years and and personally uh, your friendship to me has been a huge, huge blessing and we're grateful for everything the Lord has you doing at Beeson and beyond brother. And um, I'm grateful for you being on the podcast with us today. Thanks, Todd. Love you. Great to be with you. And you blessings. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.